I'm very happy to welcome all of y'all here tonight. Uh, please make sure you are muted so we don't unintentionally hear something we shouldn't. And uh, we will we will move right along into this amazing 1952 preface. And as we start, I'd like for us to begin with a word of prayer, and then we will jump right into our scripture verse. So if you would please bow your heads, we will begin with the word of prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the gift of this amazing book. We thank you for others to be on this journey with us to explore what C.S. Lewis is trying to communicate to us from the truth of your holy scriptures about who Jesus is. Lord, we pray that you would be our guide on this journey and that you would use this time to help us love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. So one of the things about this verse that I thought made it such a particularly appropriate one for this book is it's about how the more that we deeply know God and the more that we deeply know Jesus, both in the sense of knowing about and being in relationship with, that that will cause grace and peace to be multiplied in our lives. And in these strange times, having grace and peace be multiplied is a really great thing. So uh, please join me in saying this verse. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. And there's a lot of deep truth in there. I would commend that verse to your meditation. And if you are uh, up for a challenge of doing a little scripture memory, uh, that is a great one to memorize. So uh, as we do each week, just a quick word about how to approach this class, because every week we seem to have a couple of new folks. Um, there are several ways of doing this class. You can be on the beach, which means you basically show up when you feel like it. Uh, you may or may not fall asleep or read a book or do a crossword puzzle uh, while we're on Zoom. Uh, whatever you want to do is just fine. You do not have to do any reading. You don't have to read my emails. You can just hit the delete button. Um, and I'm glad to have you. Or you can snorkel, which means that you are along for the ride. And when you see a particular thing that interests you, you decide to pursue some of those resources that I'll put up from time to time. Or if you're scuba diving, that means that you want to go down the rabbit hole with me of being a nerd on some of these topics and, uh, Next week, there's going to be a great thing in the email for people that are scuba diving, which is a really fascinating analysis of C.S. Lewis's style and rhetoric in Mere Christianity looked at as a model of communication from a college communications professor. So uh, if you're interested in that kind of thing, you can have that to look forward to. If not, don't worry about it. Uh, and then lastly, if you are not on my email list, uh, please go to St. Philip's Charleston. Just Google that, find the church, 
and send us a note and we'll add you to that list. Um, if you've done that and you're not getting the emails, please let me know. And you might also want to check your spam filter to just make sure they're not going there. Of course, if you're on the beach, you might be happy for them to go to spam. Uh, whatever you want to do is all good. Um, a couple of things about this book, uh, even the preface. Uh, because this was originally broadcast, it's designed to be read out loud. It's not a book that's designed to be read in one sitting. Uh, it will make your head explode if you try to read it all at once. So I commend to you the idea of reading each chapter, uh, including the preface, read it out loud, chew on it, think about it for a couple of days or even a week, and then go on to the next one. And then, as I've mentioned before, uh, the C.S. Lewis Doodle uh, is a YouTube channel that is a great resource uh, for helping to understand some of what's going on in this book. So before we get into the context, I want to play our little musical selection for the evening and see if anyone can guess what it is and what it has to do with what we are talking about. So let me see if I can get this to work for us. You should hear applause. All right, so I hope you could hear at least a little bit of that. Uh, it's a little bit different. It's definitely not King's College, Cambridge. Uh, any ideas of what that might be? So if you think you know what it is, you can send a chat. which I may or may not be able to figure out how to look at. All right, well, I'm not seeing any chats, but what that was, the person who was speaking was Maria von Trapp. Uh, presumably, some of you know who Maria von Trapp is, uh, the person that the Sound of Music was about, but that was the actual real Maria Von Trapp, not Julie Andrews, and that was actually the Von Trapp family singers recorded in Austria in World War II uh, before they had fled the country. But there's a connection that we're going to get to later tonight, so you can be wondering about how Maria Von Trapp and C.S. Lewis are connected to each other. So just to review a little bit of context, uh, England, at the time Lewis is writing all of this, uh, is in the midst of World War II, in the midst of the Blitz, 
Uh, the BBC has asked Lewis to come and do these broadcast talks, which is a big ask because he is coming into London as London is being bombed and the city is in flames. And as the BBC is one of the targets of the German bombers, a place that's hit over and over and over again with casualties uh, during the war. We also talked about the pivotal role of Jimmy Webb, the guy who was the head of religious broadcasting, who was appalled by how bad the clergy of the Church of England were when they were asked to do things to try to encourage the nation. And he did something that, as we said, was not done uh, by asking a layman to give talks on theology. And if it hadn't been for Jimmy Welch, who nobody's ever heard of, we would not have this book, Mere Christianity, nor the impact that it's made on so many millions of people. And we also talked about Lewis's ministry to the Royal Air Force and how his talks to the airmen and to their chaplains really enabled him to develop a new way of speaking that was not the way he was used to speaking at Oxford faculty meetings. And we joked about the fact his first talk to the RAF was on Pauline soteriology. Uh, Lewis remarked that people during that talk fell asleep, did crossword puzzles, or just got up and walked out. So he learned that he needed to do something to try to hold their attention. So last week we talked about the 1942 preface, and that preface was the original one that was broadcast before it was written down, that Lewis started off this series with when people didn't really know who he was or what he was doing. And it's quite remarkable because he very quickly made a very strong effort to connect to his audience, to earn the right to be heard. And he really goes about inviting them in in much the same way we said as Jesus does in John's gospel with this come and see approach. He uses a tone that is really quite disarming, that's full of humility, and he has this great opening line. It's not because I'm anybody in particular that I've been asked to tell you what Christians believe. In fact, it's just the opposite. And so he goes through and says he's a layman. He understands ordinary people. He was an atheist for many years and only recently became a Christian. So he's aware of the difficulties and sees what Christianity looks like from the outside. He's an amateur, not a professional, a beginner, not an old hand. And he's asked people for help in areas he didn't understand. And he talks about the subject matter of being that which everybody in Christianity agrees on, focusing on what people hold in common, not the differences. He says the subject matter is important, and then he has this great hook where he says, if this happens to be true, what we're looking at together here, if it happens to be true, it is big enough to blow any of us sky high. And so... It's really very much like we said uh, last week what the old evangelist D.T. Niles said. Uh, the Christian faith is like one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. And you see in Lewis's preface, there's some notable things missing from it, uh, particularly notable for those of us who are Christians in the 21st century, where the first adjective most people use for Christians is judgmental. Uh, you see in Lewis's preface, there's no condescension no condemnation, no superiority, no judgment, no moralism, but there's humility, empathy. And he talks about the fact that he was changed. 
This is just not something that's nice to think about when the sky is blue. This is something that changed his life. And he's very plain speaking about it. And he says in a letter that he wrote uh, right before Mere Christianity was published uh, that his task was really that of a translator, taking Christian doctrine and putting it into the vernacular, into the language that ordinary people could understand. And then he says if theologians, the real theologians, had actually tried to do this, to talk in a way that people understood that when they began to lose touch with people in the 19th century, those people for whom Christ died, Lewis would never have had to do this work. But I think we can be very thankful that Lewis did do this work and that it has been such an amazing resource for so many people. So in terms of that first preface, there were a number of things we talked about last week that we can apply to our own lives today. One is to think about how we are perceived by non-believers. Do we even have friends that are real friends who are people who are not believers? Uh, Obviously, you can't be salt to the world if you're still in the salt shaker. We need to proactively seek to be winsome, to emulate this approach of humility and empathy, to be the ones who take the initiative to build bridges, to position ourselves as fellow seekers after truth, to focus on the heart of the gospel, who Jesus is, rather than moralism, to do the groundwork. Lewis's whole first part of this book, the first third of it, has nothing to do with Christianity. It's all laying the philosophical groundwork and answering questions about meaning, purpose, and experience. So there's a lot to learn from that. But as enthusiastic as I am about that preface, I'm even more enthusiastic about this 1952 preface, which in some ways I wish it was published as a separate work because I don't think it's ever really gotten the attention it deserves. So just a couple of words about the publication of Mere Christianity in 1952. It was published for the first time with all of the talks together in 1952 by a small publishing firm called Jeffrey Bless. And Jeffrey Bless read greats at Merton College, Oxford, uh, the college that J.R.R. Tolkien attended as a student. Uh, Greats is sort of a combination of literature and philosophy, sort of like the great books program some universities have now. And he began his career in India as a civil servant. He enlisted in World War I, worked in the political department in Mesopotamia, and he entered publishing in 1923. And he became very popular with religious folk um, in the wake of World War II. So among the people that he published were C.S. Lewis, J.B. Phillips, who's famous for uh, the J.B. Phillips paraphrase of the New Testament, uh, which if you don't know, I would commend to you. It is a beautiful and wonderful study tool. And Maria von Trapp. So Maria von Trapp and C.S. Lewis had the same publisher, and that story of the Trapp family singers, their faith and their escape from the Nazis and their role as a family singing group is described in that book that Maria wrote. So Bless had actually met C.S. Lewis through Ashley Sampson of the Centenary Press, uh, and Bless had bought them out. So the problem of pain uh, was a joint publication between Centenary 
and Jeffrey Bless. So The Problem of Pain, 1940, um, Beyond Personality, which was the second series of the broadcast talks uh, in 1944, The Christian Idea of God, uh, 1945, The Great Divorce, uh, all published by Jeffrey Bless. And then he hit the jackpot because he published the Screwtape Letters, which was a runaway bestseller. But there was a big problem with runaway bestsellers, which you can get a little bit of an idea from, from the book that's in the picture there. And you can see that the dust jacket is falling apart. But if you go on antiquarian book sites, not that I ever do that or that I'm a nerd about that. Uh, but if you do that, you will see that this particular one is described as being in excellent and pristine condition, even though it's all beat up and falling apart. And the reason for that is in World War II, there was a huge paper shortage in the UK. And the quality of the paper was appallingly bad. And that is why this cover looks so terrible. But uh, Screwtape Letters was a huge bestseller. And then uh, Jeffrey Bless uh, also published the first five of the Chronicles of Narnia and Mere Christianity. And after that, he retired because he made so much money doing that. He didn't need to work anymore. But I love the subtitle. This is one of the longer subtitles uh, that you will find in any Lewis book. But the subtitle of Mere Christianity is a revised and amplified edition with a new introduction of the three books, Broadcast Talks, Christian Behavior, and Beyond Personality. And so those are uh, the binding together of all of those broadcasts from the BBC. And Lewis didn't publish these all together until 1952. They'd been published separately in pamphlet form, but there was such huge demand for them that he decided to try to put them together in a book. And the occasion of doing that uh, made him think that perhaps he should write a new preface, which I'm so thankful that he did, because that is what we're going to talk about next. Uh, but before we get to that, I want to just rehearse a little bit about the title. Mere Christianity is a title that has become legendary. And there's all sorts of uh, stuff in the Christian world where mere, which was an English word that was probably on its way to oblivion, uh, has been resurrected because of Lewis's mere Christianity and applied to a lot of other things. People around St. Philip's in our diocese are well aware of the world-class theology conference, Mere Anglicanism. Uh, there are probably about 40 podcasts uh, that are Christian podcasts that have Mere in the title somewhere. They're all referencing Lewis's idea here. But the interesting thing is that mere Christianity was on Lewis's mind way before he published the book. And there are a number of references that the Dutch Lewis scholar Aaron Smildes put together that I just wanted to share with you. So you might remember from Screwtape Letters in Letter 25, he talks about the patient's friends as being a set that is merely Christian. Uh, so he's uh, using that word way back in 1942. A preface to Paradise Lost, uh, which you may have heard me go on about before. This is a book that people really should read. It's so great. It is a beautiful introduction to Milton's work. 
uh, and I think one of Lewis's best writings, but not very well known. But he talks about Milton uh, and mere Christianity in that preface as well. And then on the reading of old books, uh, this is the preface to uh, St. Athanasius's On the Incarnation. And Lewis, again, talks about mere Christianity and cites Richard Baxter, who we talked about before, as the source of that word. And then in an article that Lewis wrote, Christian Reunion in Anglican Speaks to Roman Catholics, that was written in 1944, but only discovered recently, uh, he says, my only function as a Christian writer is to preach mere Christianity, not ad clerum, but ad populum, which simply that Latin just means not to the clergy, but to the people. And then in a letter to the editor of the Church Times in 1952, almost at the same time the book came out, um, he talks about the fact that people of different stripes in the Christian faith uh, need to come together, the ones who truly believe in the supernatural aspect of Christianity. And he uh, says that that is what the Christian religion has understood, ubique et ab omnibus, which means everywhere and by all people, uh, that that's the kind of Christian religion that's important for everybody to be aware of. And he suggested the name Deep Church, or if that didn't sound humble enough, mere Christianity. So he's been playing with that term, that title, that excerpt from Baxter, uh, for over 10 years before this book comes out. And, of course, the quotation from Baxter comes from that book that I, even if you're scuba diving, this would really be a reach. Baxter's Church History of the Government of Bishops, published in 1680, one of the more onerous things that you might ever read in your lifetime. But it does have this gem of a section where Baxter says, I am a Christian, a mere Christian of no other religion. And the church that I am of is the Christian church and hath been visible wherever the Christian religion and church hath been visible. But must you know what sect or party I am of? I am against all sects and all dividing parties. And I think this is such a great statement, and it really captures Lewis's heart about this, that the Christian faith, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the critical core of that faith is the most important thing, far more important than any denomination or any opinion about anything. And Richard Baxter, even though he was a clergyman, was a great uh, advocate of this idea of mere Christianity. And Lewis really takes up that mantle and takes up that term and makes it his own. And we talked about how William Wilberforce, that great 19th century Christian who led the fight to abolish the slave trade, was deeply influenced by Baxter's writings and called them a treasury of Christian wisdom. So the title, and then the next thing is the preface. And I would commend to you, even if you're on the beach, uh, you might think about skimming the preference, if, preface if you don't want to read the whole thing. Um, there's some really cool things about it. So we're just going to go through it quickly. We'll see if we get through all of it tonight. Uh, but Lewis addresses a lot of fascinating things that are very much worth our time to think about, because a lot of them are very relevant 
to where the church and where we as individual Christians find ourselves right now. So the first part of the preface is about uh, the background on the use of words and writing techniques, um, alterations due to the medium of writing rather than speaking. And if you are a uh, grammar nerd uh, where you love diagramming sentences in your spare time, or if you are somebody really interested in the art of rhetoric versus the right art of persuasive, persuasive writing, um, you'll find that part interesting, but otherwise just skip that part. Uh, the second part, which is the much more important part, is he says that he is writing uh, not because he wants to give any help in choosing between denominations, but rather explaining and defending the belief common to all Christians at all times. And this is hugely important. He doesn't want to just explain the faith to help us understand what it is that Christians believe. He wants to defend it. He wants to give arguments about why it's true, but only focusing on the majors, keeping the main thing the main thing. And he says that he is a very ordinary layman of the Church of England. Uh, he's not trying to convert anyone to his own position. And he says, ever since I became a Christian, I have thought that the best, perhaps the only service I could do for my unbelieving neighbors was to explain and defend the belief that has been common to nearly all Christians at all times. Now, when you read that, you may miss one of the things that is most important about it, because I would suggest to you that if someone were to write such a sentence in the 21st century saying, Ever since I have became, ever since I became a Christian, I have thought that the best, and then you fill in the rest of the blank, what you would probably hear, I have thought that the best thing I could do is see how Christianity helps me in my self-actualization. Uh, there's a whole, uh, movement within the Christian church that is all about me, myself, and I, my self-actualization which is profoundly contrary to what Jesus says about loving God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving our neighbor as ourselves. So look how Lewis says the best, perhaps the only service he can do for his unbelieving neighbors is to explain and defend his belief. His neighbors are on his heart. He has passion for his unbelieving neighbors and thinks that he owes a duty to them that's a direct result of his conversion to Christianity. And then he talks a little bit about uh, some of these things that he uh, wants to avoid. And the first one is Christian, questions that divide Christians. And he says these things often involve points of high theology or ecclesiastical history, and only people who are real experts should talk about them. Um, he says he would be out of his depth. Well, if Lewis was out of his depth, I hate to think what that means for us. Uh, but he says he would be out of his depth dealing with that and more in need of help than able to help others. Uh, I think that's a great point. We don't need to get hung up on things like infra versus superlapsarian uh, end times eschatology, just as an example. Um, Christians get into all kinds of weird debates about things, and we need to avoid that. The scriptures tell us to avoid 
senseless controversies about words. And then Lewis goes on to make a point about why this is so important. He says, discussing these disputed points has no tendency at all to bring an outsider into the Christian fold, much more likely to deter him from entering any Christian communion than to draw him into our own. Our division should never be discussed except in the presence of those who have already come to believe that there is one God and that Jesus Christ is his only son. And that is a great word for the church today. It is a great word about not putting down people who differ from you if they claim the name of Christ. Um, I could do a whole long thing on that, and I won't, I'll restrain myself. But uh, it is so important. And Lewis says, only when we are together in the body of Christ should those things even be discussed. They should not be what we're discussing with people outside the church. And then the last thing he says in that part is that other, and what he says are more talented authors, which is his humility coming through again, are already engaged in writing about such controversies. And he said the part of the line, he's usually the military example, like a line of soldiers, the line that needed reinforcing, the one that was the thinnest, was the one where Lewis thought he could serve best, which is this expounding of mere Christianity. So then uh, he goes into a section about why he is silent about some things that people wanted him to address. And this is interesting because we're getting a little window into Lewis's uh, correspondence. Uh, you might remember from an earlier talk that Lewis got literally thousands of letters in response to these broadcast talks, each one of which he answered personally. And a lot of times they were asking him very arcane questions. Uh, sometimes they were asking him questions like, was he interested in meeting a lady? Uh, but more often they were uh, arcane questions about theological beliefs. And so uh, the fact that he doesn't address some of these things, he says people have been drawing inferences that are not warranted. So the first thing he says is silence does not mean necessarily that I myself am sitting on the fence about the issue. Sometimes I am. There are questions at issue between Christians to which I don't think I have the answer. There are some to which I may never know the answer. If I ask them even in a better world, I might, for all I know, be answered as a far greater questioner was answered. What is that to thee? Follow thou me. In other words, don't get hung up on some of these things. Sometimes things are holy mysteries. Then the second type of question, there are other questions as to which I'm definitely on one side of the fence and yet say nothing. For I was not writing to expound something I could call my religion, but to expound mere Christianity. Lewis was very definitely a uh, practicing member of the Church of England and really thoroughly believed uh, the faith and practice of that church. But he didn't require that of other people. Uh, we see that in his relationship, especially with Tolkien, who was a devout Roman Catholic who went to Mass every day. Um, and sometimes they would talk about the differences between Anglicanism and Roman Catholicism, but never did that become any kind of barrier uh, or controversy for them. And then the third type of silence, he says, my silence on disputed points does not mean that I think them important 
or that I think them unimportant. One of the things Christians are disagreed about is the importance of their disagreements. Christians can disagree about just about anything. It's one of Satan's favorite tools. When two Christians of different denominations start arguing, it's usually not long before one asks whether such and such a point really matters. And the other replies, matter? Why, it's absolutely essential. And I think Lewis is so right about that. And one of the areas where people disagree um, is on what's important, on what the most important priorities for the church are. So you have to be very careful about that because people's understanding of what's the most important thing is radically different. And shouting at each other and arguing with each other about these things especially in the midst of people who are not yet believers, is not helpful. And then he has this great quotation. He says, my own beliefs, to quote Uncle Toby, they are written in the common prayer book. And this is a quote from one of those books that's way out of vogue, that if you're really scuba diving, you might want to go check this out. Uh, Lawrence Stern's Tristam Shandy. If you've ever heard of Tristam Shandy, raise your hand. Okay, well, good. At least some of you have heard of it. Tristram Shandy was one of the great literary hits of the 18th century. It is, however, nine volumes long. Nine volumes um, written over a period of almost a decade. And uh, it is written by a guy who was an Anglican clergyman of all people. And Uncle Toby uh, is one of the characters and there's a lady named Mrs. Wadham that he's uh, thinking about whether he may want to uh, become engaged to. She perhaps is more interested in that than he is. And so she's pushing him about what he believes about different things on theology. And it's clear that she wants him to talk about what he believes about marriage. And finally, in exasperation, he says to her that his beliefs are those that are written in the common prayer book which, of course, is the Book of Common Prayer, at that point, the 1662 edition, uh, which is not terribly different from our 1928 uh, prayer book. So that's where Lewis uh, gets that quotation from. And then he moves on um, after saying he believes what's in the prayer book, uh, but he's not going to break his silence on these issues because they're not important enough to do that. He then goes on to talk about what measures were taken to guard against prejudice in describing what constitutes mere Christianity. And Lewis was very sensitive on this point. And he said, the danger clearly was that I should put forward as common Christianity anything that was peculiar to the Church of England or, worse still, to myself. I tried to guard against this by sending the original script of what is now book two to four clergymen. And you'll remember, uh, we talked about this uh, in previous lessons, he sent the entire text of the talks to an Anglican clergyman, Austin Farrer, one of the great theologians of the Anglican world of the 20th century. Uh, he sent them to Eric Fenn, a Presbyterian minister, he sent them to Dom Bede Griffiths, one of his former students, a Roman Catholic priest and scholar, and then to the Reverend James Dowell, who was a Methodist chaplain. 
And they all pretty much came back saying, yeah, you pretty much got it right. So he was uh, very encouraged by that and felt like he was right in the middle of the road. Uh, and then there's a little part where if you read this, you may have been confused here. Uh, so I hope I will be able to enlighten you a little bit if this part confused you. But he said, it may be possibly of some help in silencing the view that if we omit the disputed points, we shall have left only a vague and bloodless HCF. The HCF turns out to be something not only positive, but pungent, divided from all non-Christian beliefs by a chasm to which the worst divisions inside Christendom are not really comparable at all. And you may have read that and said, huh? What's he talking about? Well, what he's talking about here is that there were a number of theologians that said, if you leave out the disputed points, there's not even a skeleton. There's no framework left. You've gutted Christianity of everything. And Lewis says that is absolutely not true because of the HCF. Now, the HCF is, uh, you have to be a little older uh, before the new math uh, to understand that. The HCF and LCD are mathematical terms uh, that refer to when you're trying to solve fractions. So the HCF is the highest common factor. So you'll see down at the bottom there, if you were given the fraction 49 over 35, and asked to solve for the HCF, the highest common factor, of uh, the biggest number that could divide into both of them, the highest common factor there is seven. So it's like the lowest common denominator. So it's essentially the biggest thing that they have in common. And what Lewis says here is that the HCF, the highest common factor of Christianity, those core things that make up mere Christianity, when you look at all of that, it's not something that's weak and soppy. Instead, it is positive, it's pungent, and it is something that really matters, that it is divided from not being Christian by a chasm. And he says the worst divisions in Christendom are nothing to the size of that chasm. So um, HCF uh, is just a mathematical way of saying the biggest thing that they have in common. Now, those of us in Charleston, uh, whenever I see HCF, Historic Charleston Foundation, where I used to work, is called HCF. So every time I read that, I have to catch myself to think, what's he talking about? But it's what we have in common. And he says, we forget that what we have in common is so much bigger than our differences. And one of the most heartening things uh, that's happened uh, over the past 40 years or so is that there's been a great deal of working together of Catholics and Protestants on issues that um, you would never have seen that kind of cooperation before. And it's exactly because of what Lewis is talking about here, of understanding that what we have in common is so much more important than that which separates us. And then there's this beautiful section where Lewis is building on that point. And he says, it is at her center where her truest children dwell that each communion is really closest to every other in spirit, if not in doctrine. And this suggests that at the center of each communion, there is something 
or a someone who against all divergences of belief, all differences of temperament, all memories of mutual persecution speaks with the same voice. Now that is a section that will repay some meditation. But what Lewis is saying there is that the closer we are to the core of our faith, regardless of what denomination we are, that is when we are closest to our other brothers and sisters in Christ across the spectrum. It's that same idea that when we are in worship, our eyes are turned off of ourselves and turned toward God. And the reason that that is true is because at the center, it's not just an idea, but it's a person. That at the center is that holy and life-giving trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the source of all life that is overflowing with joy and wonder and goodness that sprinkles all of us when we draw close together. And so uh, that is, uh, as preachers say, that is something that we'll preach. But I would commend it to you as something to think about and makes it reminds us why it's so important to be drawing near to God every day. And then Lewis concludes that part by saying, focusing on the center helps prevent odium theologicum. That sounds to me almost like a toothpaste commercial, helps prevent halitosis. Uh, but it is about preventing theological hatred, which is one of the great ironies that there is such a thing as theological hatred within the church, that the intense anger and hatred that Christians have toward other Christians over disputed points of theology. And you can just hear Screwtape cackling about that, that the devil loves it when we fight each other because we take each other out and he doesn't even have to bother. Then Lewis moves on about a different aspect of silence and talks about what silence on certain matters of morals means. Because some people took him to task and said, you need to come out and preach against some of these moral evils that are going on in the culture. And Lewis absolutely refused to do that, not because he didn't hold to a traditional morality, but again, he thought the first work of the Christian, and indeed the first work of the Holy Spirit, is conversion to the faith, that behavior changes follow conversion, not the other way around. And I love this, the way that he puts this. He says, ever since I served as an infantryman in the First World War, I have had a great dislike of people who themselves in ease and safety issue exhortations to men in the front line. And you'll remember, if you've been with me in some previous classes, that Lewis was an infantryman in World War I, and on his 19th birthday, arrived on the front lines in the Battle of the Somme, the most devastating battle of World War I, where there was all sorts of absolute incompetence uh, in the leadership. And this was where there were misguided raids that were ordered, where all of these young men were ordered out of their trenches to charge when they knew well that there were lines of machine guns trained on them and they would just be utterly decimated. 
But the high command didn't understand that and ordered it over and over and over. And Lewis saw some of his dearest friends blown to bits right before his eyes because of this kind of incompetence. And it gave him a great, as he said, a great dislike of people who are giving exhortations and commands when they're not actually in the heat of the battle themselves. And Lewis puts it this way, as a result, I have a reluctance to say much about temptations to which I myself am not exposed. No man, I suppose, is tempted to every sin. As a result, I have a reluctance to say much about temptations to which I myself am not exposed. No man, I suppose, is tempted to every sin. It so happens that the impulse which makes men gamble has been left out of my makeup. And no doubt, I pay for this by lacking some good impulse of which it is the excess or perversion. I therefore did not feel myself qualified to give advice about permissible and impermissible gambling, if there is any permissible, for I do not claim to know even that. I have also said nothing about birth control. I am not a woman. Glad he's clear on that. I am not a woman or even a married man, nor am I a priest. I did not think it my place to take a firm line about pains, dangers, and expenses from which I am protected, having no pastoral office which obliged me to do so. Now, I think there's great wisdom here. There's great wisdom about having empathy for people and not judging people. You might remember that someone famous in their most famous talk said, judge not that ye be not judged. Oh, wait, yes, that was Jesus, right? Jesus said that in the Sermon on the Mount. And so it's a great reminder to us to not lead with judgment, to not be um, tempted to go out and point our finger at everyone. That is not to say that there's not a lot of evil and destructive behavior in the world, but people need the gospel. They need to be converted before they can even have a framework to understand why that behavior is so destructive. And then the real riches of this are uh, in the last part. And this uh, point six is where the real treasure begins. So the first thing is a defense of the meaning of the word Christian. And you'll remember Lewis was a staunch believer in the real meaning of words. This is partially because of his friendship with Tolkien, who was a philologist who studied language and how words acquired their meanings. But nothing got Lewis's goat more than when people misused words. So he states the issue this way. Far deeper objections may be felt and have been expressed, i.e. in those letters he got, against my use of the word Christian to mean one who accepts the common doctrines of Christianity. People ask, who are you to lay down who is and who is not a Christian? Or may not many a man who cannot believe these doctrines be far more truly a Christian, far closer to the spirit of Christ than some who do? Now, this objection is in one sense very right, very charitable, very spiritual, very sensitive. It has every amiable quality except that of being useful. We simply cannot 
without disaster, use language as these objectors want us to use it. And Lewis builds the argument by making an analogy with the word gentleman. He says the word gentleman originally meant something recognizable, one who had a coat of arms and some landed property. When you called someone a gentleman, you were not paying a compliment, but merely stating a fact. If you said he was not a gentleman, you were not insulting him, but giving information. There was no contradiction in saying that John was a liar and a gentleman, any more than there now is in saying that James is a fool and an M.A. But then there came people who said so rightly, charitably, spiritually, sensitively, so anything but usefully, ah, but surely the important thing about a gentleman is not the coat of arms and the land, but the behavior. Surely he is the true gentleman who behaves as a gentleman should. Surely, in that sense, Edward is far more truly a gentleman than John. They meant well. To be honorable and courteous and brave is, of course, a far better thing than to have a coat of arms. But it is not the same thing. Worse still, it is not a thing everyone will agree about. To call a man a gentleman in this new refined sense becomes, in fact, not a way of giving information about him, but a way of praising him. To deny that he is a gentleman becomes simply a way of insulting him. When a word ceases to be a term of description and becomes merely a term of praise, it no longer tells you facts about the object. I'm going to read that again. When a word ceases to be a term of description and becomes merely a term of praise, it no longer tells you facts about the object. It only tells you about the speaker's attitude toward the object. A nice meal only means a meal the speaker likes. Now, he gets to why this matters. Now, if once we allow people to start spiritualizing and refining, or as they might say, deepening the sense of the word Christian, it too will speedily become a useless word. In the first place, Christians themselves will never be able to apply it to anyone. It is not for us to say who, in the deepest sense, is or is not close to the spirit of Christ. We do not see into men's hearts. We cannot judge and are indeed forbidden to judge. We must therefore stick to the original obvious meaning. The name Christians was first given at Antioch in Acts 11.26 to the disciples, to those who accepted the teaching of the apostles. There's no question of its being restricted to those who profited by that teaching as much as they should have. There's no question of its being extended to those who in some refined spiritual inward fashion were far closer to the spirit of Christ than the less satisfactory of the disciples. The point is not a theological or moral one. It is only a question of using words so that we can all understand what is being said. When a man who accepts the Christian doctrine lives unworthily of it, it is much clearer to say he is a bad Christian than to say he is not a Christian. 
Now, this is a section that will bear rereading and will bear rereading out loud. And I think it's something that's so important right now in our culture because words are being stripped of their meaning, not just in the church, but in our culture at large. And they're being ascribed new meanings um, that are politically correct, where if you use the word in its correct sense, um, you incur all sorts of wrath. Now, Lewis foresaw that this was coming. Um, I would commend to you who are scuba diving Lewis's book, That Hideous Strength, which is a dystopian fantasy novel that is the outworking of his theological treatise, uh, The Abolition of Man. But it's one of its chief points is about a group called the NICE. You have to love that word, the NICE. The NICE is a government organization. Imagine that. A government organization, the National Institute for Coordinated Experiments. And its job is to essentially control the media to stamp out Christian faith, among other things, and to redefine the meaning of words. Now, that might sound sort of familiar uh, if you've been watching the news much, uh, but it is it is well worth reading that book and seeing why words matter so much. Uh, I could go on and on about that, but I really want to get to this next point, uh, which we're going to expand on the next time. This next part about mere Christianity and entering the community of faith is so very important. Lewis says here, I hope no reader will suppose that mere Christianity is here put forward as an alternative to the creeds of the existing communions, as if a man could adopt it in preference to congregationalism or Greek orthodoxy or anything else. It is more like a hall out of which doors open into several rooms. If I can bring anyone into that hall, I shall have done what I attempted. But it is in the rooms, not in the hall, that there are fires and chairs and meals. The hall is a place to wait in, a place from which to try the various doors, not a place to live in. For that purpose, the worst of the rooms, whichever that may be, is, I think, preferable. It is true that some people may find they have to wait in the hall for a considerable time, while others feel certain almost at once which door they must knock at. I do not know why there is this difference, but I am sure God keeps no one waiting unless he sees that it is good for him to wait. When you do get into your room, you will find that the long wait has done you some kind of good, which you have not had otherwise. But you must regard it as waiting, not as camping. You must keep on praying for light. And of course, even in the hall, you must begin trying to obey the rules which are common to the whole house. And above all, you must be asking which door is the true one, not which pleases you best by its paint and paneling. In plain language, the question should never be, do I like that kind of service? But are these doctrines true? Is holiness here? Does my conscience move me toward this? Is my reluctance to knock at this door due to my pride or my mere taste or my personal dislike of this particular doorkeeper? When you've reached your own room, be kind to those who have chosen different doors and to those who are still in the hall. If they are wrong, they need your prayers all the more. And if they are your enemies, 
then you are under orders to pray for them. That is one of the rules common to the whole house. And we'll talk about this a little bit more next week, but I want to just point out a few things tonight. The first is I think this image of the hall and the doors is brilliant. And I think it is one of the chief issues for 21st century Christianity, especially in this country. Uh, as we've talked about in some earlier classes, uh, we often find the phenomenon today, um, particularly among people that are younger than 50, uh, of people who will say that they are Christians and they believe in Jesus and they're following him. And then you ask them, well, what church are you part of? And they say, well, I don't go to church. I'm not involved in a church. And that whole idea is antithetical to the New Testament. Uh, when you became a Christian, you moved into the body, into the fellowship of believers. And that's what Lewis is talking about here. And we live in a culture where we have a whole group of people that have decided to camp in the hall and never go into a room. And it reminds me, uh, back in the day when I was uh, working in the legal field and I had a big expense account and I was traveling to London on a regular basis, I used to have to entertain. And so when I was in London, I would always stay at the Hyde Park Hotel. And the Hyde Park Hotel, for those of you who have been here, is one of those just gorgeous, uh, turn-of-the-century, uh, beautiful hotels. And I always got a room that overlooked Hyde Park in the back. And the hallway of that hotel was beautiful. It was richly appointed and it had thick carpet. But when you flung open the double doors into my suite, there were floor-to-ceiling windows looking out on Hyde Park. There was beautiful, comfortable furniture. There was an exquisite room service menu. And sometimes I would get the suite that had the fireplace in it where they would have a cackling fire going. The hall, nice as it was, was nothing compared to the room. And as Lewis says, the rooms off the hallway of Christian belief are where food and fires and fellowship are all located. They're the place where we belong. They're the place where there's love and joy and service and deep fellowship together. And we cut ourselves off from the life that God desires to give us, that abundant life, by staying in the hall. Or even if we've embraced a particular church, by just staying on the periphery. Uh, many of us during COVID, that's been one of the biggest struggles is we feel cut off. We feel sort of like we're stuck in that hall. But I think one of the great advantages of this time is to make us appreciate how right Lewis is about this how much we need each other, how much we need these rooms that are rooms we can welcome others into where the fire is going and the food is ready and there's smiling people that are ready to welcome you in, not to judge you and tell you that you're bad, but to invite you to come and see who Jesus is. So on that note, uh, let's move to our closing section and we'll have a prayer and then some time for some questions. So this is the quotation from the very end of the book uh, that there is deep gospel wisdom in. So please say this with, with, with me. Give up yourself and you will find your real self. Lose your life and you will save it. Submit to death, death of your ambitions and favorite wishes every day, 
and death of your whole body and the end. Submit with every fiber of your being, and you will find eternal life. Keep back nothing. Nothing that you have not given away will ever be really yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself, and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ, and you will find him, and with him, everything else thrown in. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your servant, C.S. Lewis, and for his passion to share with his neighbors the truth of your life-giving gospel. Lord, we pray that you would fire our hearts with passion for the truth of who you are. Lord, we pray that when we find ourselves stuck in the hall, that you would motivate us in our hearts to move into the rooms, to choose that room and to be invested in that room with those who are like-minded in serving you, tending the fire, making the meals, and inviting others to come and see. Lord, we thank you for your love and the abundant life that you offer us in Jesus. And we pray all of these things in his name. Amen. So uh, if anybody has any questions, I think we're going to try to uh, do that through raising your hand, or you can uh, uh, unmute yourself and ask uh, whatever you would like, or if you have any comments, uh, or if you don't, that's perfectly fine as well. Or you can send a question by chat if you would prefer to do that. Well, given that I am not hearing or seeing any questions, let me just reiterate that I would really encourage you to go back and spend some time with this preface, because I think that there are so many things in it that are really unbelievably relevant for where we are today as 21st century American Christians, and that when we begin to get a hold of some of what Lewis is talking about here uh, it will really transform the way that we think about church. It will transform the way that we think about relationships with people who are not believers. And it will transform the joy that we have uh, and the purposefulness that we sense when we are actually all together. So thank you so much for being here tonight. Uh, I am very grateful for each of you. Uh, just a reminder that I will send out in the email, but next Wednesday, since it's the Wednesday night before Thanksgiving, we will not be meeting, uh, but we will be uh, the week after that, which I think is maybe December 3rd, something like that. So we will be, we will be back that week and we will start again with the hall and the rooms because 
believe it or not, that was only a part of what I want to say about that. And uh, then we will progress on into the first chapter. So if you want to begin the first chapter, uh, that would be really great. I do see there's a little question that has appeared uh, about etymology. And one of the things that is interesting about words, uh, as Janice points out here, is that the meaning of words change over time. And so how do you know which word meanings to hold on to? And that's a great question. And I think that uh, it's hard to know that. But I think that what Lewis would probably have say to that is whatever is closest to uh, the etymology and use of the word in the period where the word became popular. Uh, so, for example, the word gentleman, uh, that was a word that really came to the fore uh, right after the Middle Ages, and that that is when it really meant something. So that that's probably what he would have uh, said about that. So I think looking to the roots, Lewis was a big believer in looking back to the um, Greek and Latin and Anglo-Saxon or French roots of things. Uh, one of one of the reasons that it's so valuable to look at etymology is that. Uh, recently, when I was preaching and talking about Jesus's command uh, not to worry in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, it's interesting when you look at the word worry, uh, the etymology, when you go back to the Anglo-Saxon, literally means to seize someone by the throat. Well, that will give you uh, a real sense of what worry is all about, and uh, that makes it that much more understandable about why it's something that Jesus tells us not to do. So that's a great question, but I think uh, etymology is always uh, a good thing to check on. Um, I also see a little note from Cynthia about uh, maybe reading and studying that hideous strength at some point. Don't tempt me. Uh, that is actually, most of the time, if you ask me my favorite Lewis book, that would be it. Uh, it's not Lewis's easiest book, but it is just really fascinating and very apt uh, for uh, the times in which we live. So maybe after mere Christianity, that might be the next thing. But I would commend it to you, those of you that want to scuba dive. Uh, it's a great book. Uh, the story is good, and it's also incredibly relevant right now. So. All right. Well, with that, um, thank you all for being here. Uh, great to see all of you. I hope you have a wonderful Thanksgiving with your family. Uh, please feel free to tell any of your friends that you think might be interested in this class. We're happy to have anyone uh, that's a fellow pilgrim on this journey. So God bless you, and we will look forward to seeing you next time. You too. Good job, Brian. <laughs>